from today's epistle. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. As Americans, particularly 21st century Americans, we are not very keen, are we, on the ideas of authority and others outranking our own desires. We instead overvalue self-determination, self-guidance, and self-inspiration. We are our own rulers, kings, and servants, slaves to none and nothing save the impulses of our own souls and desires and thoughts. St. Paul in our epistle this morning would have us as Christians to think and behave differently. He writes to a group of Christians who live in the heart of a corrupt and anti-Christian empire, the city of Rome. If ever there were a group of people to instruct in resisting governmental authority, it would be first century Christians in that city. But that is not what we read, is it? Instead, we find the beautiful yet mysterious treatise of Romans chapter 13. St. Paul calls for us to be subject to all authority and power over us, for as he says, all power is derived by God. And by submitting to the powers that be, we are actually engaging in acts of worship towards God, who is the source of earthly power which is the theme of actually the gospel passage we heard read. Jesus, who is God, has not just authority over his disciples or a few people here and there, but over sickness, over demons. And we can recall the account of where Jesus walks on water. He even has authority over the wind and the waves, all of creation. He is truly king of kings and lord of lords, ruler of creation and master of all hearts. He has all authority. And he grants that authority to earthly rulers. In this way, then, proper authority on earth is a manifestation of Jesus' own rule and authority. Recall that this season that we find ourselves in in the church calendar, Epiphany Tide, is about the manifestation of Jesus as God to his followers and to us. He manifested this powerfully in the gospel lesson when he heals this, this uh, centurion's sick servant from a distance. But, says St. Paul, he continues to manifest his rule and earthly authority over all creation as he bestows authority to earthly rulers. He works in mysterious ways through the power structures of this world. And should we resist and disobey, then we risk acting in rebellion against Christ himself who is our ruler. Now, of course, this is a much more complicated subject than I can preach on this morning. Authority is good. Government is a good. And it is a good and holy thing when we obey our leaders, whether we like them or agree with them or not. This is true, says the fathers of the church, for other positions of authority in our life. Paul's words, while mainly about the government, applies just as well to bosses at work. Parents at home, religious leaders at church, particularly the bishop who bears the authority of God for us and for our souls. As much as the American ideal would like for us to think that we are self-directing, autonomous individuals, the truth is each of us in this room 
is a person under authority. And probably we are each of us is a person in authority over others, at least in our families or other job situations. So how will we respond to these situations? In, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we read a very interesting and insightful verse. It says this, The sin of rebellion is as of the sin of witchcraft. To rebel against proper authority is in the eyes of God no different than casting spells, conjuring demons, and bowing down to idols. Why? Because in the end, it is actually just that, the worship of the idol we call ourself. Now, such discussions always raise the question, well, Father, what do we do when the authorities want me to do something against my Christian faith? That's a good question. And the tradition of the church is clear in interpreting St. Paul's words here. Since he roots all authority in God, then we must ultimately align ourselves with that authority first and foremost. In other words, rebellion against earthly authority for the sake of obeying God's ultimate authority isn't rebellion per se. It is the earthly ruler who is in rebellion against his authority, God Almighty. Take, for example, St. Peter, who, when ordered by the Jewish council, which would have been religious but also a governmental authority in Israel, in Acts chapter 4 to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, he responded, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, you judge. Or when a similar situation happened just in the next chapter, Acts chapter 5, St. Peter says, We ought to obey God rather than men. How do we hold Peter and Paul together on this issue? We should say that by and large, most of the time, one should obey the government. You know, pay your taxes, follow the speed limit, do that sort of stuff. Rarely actually does the government ask someone to do something that stands directly and overtly against Christian conviction. But there are exceptions. And if I'm being honest, I think such exceptions will quickly become the norm as our own country progresses further and further. In those cases of ex exception, we are required to obey God first and foremost, no matter what the consequences. He is our ultimate authority, and he is the one who rewards with eternal life or death. And so I find it providential then that today's readings for the fourth Sunday after the Epiphany just so happen to coincide with an annual feast that falls on January 30th every single year, right? So the fourth Sunday of Epiphany isn't always January 30th, but today they happen to be the same. It's a feast that relates directly to these themes and ideas we've been discussing. The Feast of St. Charles, King and Martyr. Now, we're all familiar with King James, right? He's the one that wrote the Bible. Well, he was succeeded... Yeah, good, I'm glad you got it. He was... <laughs> He was succeeded in, in lineage after his death by his son, Charles. And this was the year 1625. Charles inherited a deeply divided England. The division was both political and religious, both of which during this era were often indistinguishable ideas. To keep us from having a long history lesson, I'll oversimplify things by saying there were two parties, generally, that one could side with in England at this time. 
First, there were the roundheads. Why? So-called because the men of this camp wore short hair as a sign of their austere piety rather than the long, flowy, curly hair of the royal court. Yeah. They were politically more democratic, and religiously they were Puritan. They were Calvinist. They were low church. They wanted to see the religious reforms of the continent, think Calvin, and even uh, think Geneva, think Presbyterianism, come to England. And they resisted the idea that the king was set up by God to rule and govern the people. Imagine that didn't go over well with the king. The other party was called the royalist. They supported the notion of God-appointed kings who deserve our obedience. They were also high church, non-Calvinist and sought to bring more beauty, order, and Catholicity to the English church. While not being papist, they weren't Roman Catholic, they wanted to undo some of the more radical religious reforms that had taken root in some part of the nation and church. King Charles strongly sided with this second camp. He was a deeply pious and religious individual, and he pushed for what we might call a proto-Anglo-Catholicism to take root in the Church of England. For example, under his guidance, Holy Communion became, for a short while, the principal service in many parishes rather than morning prayer. Music returned to churches and cathedrals. That's right, the Puritans didn't like music. That's too austere. You can't have fun at church. Vestments adorned ministers. Candles set upon altars, who would have thought, and pyramids hung over lecterns and altars alike. Even incense, God forbid, incense was burned at special liturgies in the royal chapel. Well, eventually the nation erupted into civil war and the king was captured, held prisoner, and sentenced to death. Charles was, in fact, offered his life. If, however, he would just repudiate and renounce one aspect of the Church of England's belief that his low churchman opponents saw as simply too Roman and evil, that of the necessity of bishops in apostolic authority and succession. That's it. He could be a free man, albeit not king, but he could be a free man living alive if he allowed the English church to become Presbyterian protestant in his governance and what did charles do he refused he refused because even though the parliament was by this time his earthly authority and he was in rebellion to them technically he recognized that he answered to a higher calling a higher king and god jesus and to renounce this crucial doctrine of the church would be to reduce his beloved Church of England to nothing more than a Protestant sect. He saw in apostolic succession the very minimum of Catholic Christianity. And it was something worth preserving, worth fighting for, and even worth dying for. Charles awoke on the day of his execution and said to his attendant, This is my second marriage day, for before night I hope to be espoused to my blessed Jesus. He then said morning prayer with his bishop and received Holy Communion for the last time. Later that day, he was eventually led to the block and before yielding his neck to the axe, he proclaimed, I go from a corruptible crown to an incorruptible. 
where no disturbance can be, no disturbance of this whole world. And them, with sure and certain hope of the resurrection, the good king quietly laid his head upon the block and signaled to the man that he was ready for the chop. After his death, England spiraled into political dismay. The monarchy was disestablished. The royal family was sent into exile. The English church was also disestablished, and many bishops either died through execution or had to reside in hiding outside of their beloved England. Most ironically, the Puritan clan that desired more democratic rule, they actually established one of the most brutal dictatorships of the pre-modern world. Much happened in these intervening years, but by 1660, the monarchy had been restored and the English church reestablished. Almost immediately, the church set out to write a new book of common prayer, one that would make it clear that Anglicanism had once and for all distanced itself from a Puritan and Protestant past. One of the most notable features was an addition found within the calendar of feasts, as well as the propers. The propers is that part of the prayer book that gives you the collect, the epistle, and the gospel for each Sunday, as well as for all the saints' days at the end of that section. There was a new edition on the calendar. There was a new edition of readings for a Holy Communion service alongside the propers for the various biblical saints, Matthew, John, Stephen, Titus, was a new modern saint. In fact, it is the only saint who has ever been officially canonized, meaning added to the calendar, by the Anglican Church. King Charles, the martyr. The English church, upon its restoration, recognized their late king as more than just a political casualty in the Civil War, but as a saint who bore witness through his life and death, which is what that Greek word martyr means, to bear witness to Jesus. He bore witness to the authority of Jesus Christ, his true king, to the authority of apostolic order, and to the necessity of such order in Christ's church especially if Anglicanism was to remain a member of Christ holy, of one holy Catholic and apostolic church. No stronger statement could be made against the Calvinist and roundheads than by placing Charles in the prayer book. They, they were in essence saying to him, you, the man you killed, he died in service to God, defending the faith, and we recognize him not as just a casualty of war, but as a martyr unto God Almighty. Now, so much more could be said about the account of St. Charles, especially as it relates to the epistle lesson from St. Paul. We could easily condemn the roundheads for their rebellion and overthrowing the rightful authority of God, King Charles. But I think a more important application for us this morning is to look at the life and witness of St. Charles one who stood for the truth amidst political pressure and turmoil. Now, the world has changed a lot since the 17th century. And so I seriously doubt that we will ever lose our heads over issues related to episcopacy or real presence of Christ in the Eucharist or vestments on the priest. No, but I do foresee that traditional Christians like you, me, and King Charles are going to meet more and more opposition as we progress further into the 21st century. Our political climate is going to place more and more pressure on us to seed our biblical stances on issues related to sexuality, marriage, 
transgenderism, abortion. The questions before us will become, do we obey God or man? At what point does obedience to the government become undoable in our pursuit of ultimate obedience towards God? The day is coming, I believe, when we will become martyrs. Maybe not through the shedding of blood, but through other means. Losing jobs, financial persecution, even jail sentences due to hate speech. Read what's going on in Canada. All because we refuse to give up our confession of those things which we believe constitute the fullness of Christ's doctrine and church. For St. Charles, it was the episcopacy and apostolic succession. For us, it could be a host of current issues or perhaps something new in the future that we don't even yet see on the horizon. Whatever happens, though, I pray we will be bold, like today's saint, to stand for the truth, to become visible icons of Christ's supreme authority, and through this become as well personal epiphanies of Jesus Christ to a lost and fallen world. May we find wisdom in the months and years to come to know when to obey authority and when to resist. And may we be granted strength should the moment arrive to bear witness, even ultimate witness, to Jesus. For he alone is our King and our God. St. Charles, blessed King and martyr, pray for us and for all who bear witness to Christ our King. Amen. Amen.